Now, as you know, uh, last time we got together, <clears throat> I started to bring you through what probably is going to be um, the real crux of you uh, getting an overview understanding of the Bible. Uh, I told you that the Bible <clears throat> looks like a very complicated book, but in reality, it's really not. <clears throat> uh, the greatest quality of God, and most people would never see this or never grasp it, <clears throat> the greatest quality of God <clears throat> is not his complexity, it's his simplicity. And uh, <clears throat> he, uh, he has the ability to take himself, which is a very complex concept, and he'd break it down into very simple terms that anybody could grasp if they really wanted it. <clears throat> so we want to remember that. And uh, I told you that fundamentally, uh, the Bible breaks down into, into 17 categories, 17 sections. And the, really the way to learn the Bible as far as the overall conception of the Bible, there's a lot of things about the Bible that we're going to begin to go through once we get the overall conception down. But the overall mindset, the overall conception of the Bible <clears throat> is basically these 17 uh, concepts. Uh, I gave you two last week. I gave you Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2, and I gave you um, the rebuilding of, of God's heavens, which takes place in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, <clears throat> you should have those down now. Uh, you should have those actually in your Bible by now. Uh, I'm going to tell you, from experience that if you wait and get behind on putting this stuff in, you're never going to get it done. <clears throat> the mark of, of good Bible study and mark of a good Bible student is one word, is diligence. It's being diligent with what you have to get it in when you can. Procrastination is the <clears throat> thing that will kill anybody when it comes to the Bible. Um, you know, you'll think, well, I'll do it later, I'll have time later, and later never comes. And then uh, it just never gets done. And then before you know it, you're Believe it or not, you have a whole month, but pretty quick you're two months, three months behind, and then you're dead. You never get caught up. So, <clears throat> you know, I really encourage you to do that as we come through. And uh, I'm basically taking each one of these sections and, and, and breaking it down for you that you understand it. So it, it works for you. That you have come out of here today with a working knowledge of each one of these. And then, as I said, once you get them down and you understand it, then you just simply bolt them all back together. And uh, then you have the complete layout of the Bible from a conceptual standpoint, what God is doing. Then we'll go back in <clears throat> and we'll look at the, the details of the Bible itself. My goal is to bring you through, obviously you can't do them all, but the major ones, the seven series, the seven baptisms, seven judgments, seven resurrections, seven mysteries, <clears throat> and show you how those things actually will shrink the Bible even more into a concept that you'll understand it. And it'll explain a lot of things that are wrong out there that you, you have to look at. So, you know, that's what we want to try to do. And um, right now, like I said, uh, and this will take us quite a while to do this, but uh, I hope to get this done within this year, and then we'll move on to the next one. Now, the third section I want to talk about is going to be in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 2 and 3 and uh, four. And it's going to be, it's going to be the uh, concept of, of, of Adam and Eve. And there's a lot here, and I won't be able to, you know, go into a lot of detail with a lot of it, but I'm going to try to give you an overall perspective of it. 
the book of Genesis forms for you the format for the whole Bible. You're going to find that Genesis uh, is called the book of the beginnings. Uh, it's really the book of the beginning of everything. Uh, everything that God is going to do through the rest of his tenure uh, down through history and then on into eternity is found and defined for you in the book of Genesis. Most people don't get that. So when we look at the story of Adam and Eve, most people see it as the beginning of human population, which is true. Adam and Eve were the first people on the planet, and uh, every, most people just take it to the fact that uh, uh, Adam and Eve were, you know, God's plan for earth, and it goes on from there. But we also know that in the Bible, for it to be complete, it has to be three. So we know that God has three distinct plans in the Bible. We talked about it in our first couple of months together. God has a plan for the earth. We're going to see it with Adam and Eve. Uh, God has a plan for um, the universe. I mean, there's a reason why God made it, and, and Adam and Eve fit right into that concept. And then God has a plan for your individual life that he wants you to accomplish, as he did for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is the first model in the Bible uh, that show us God's complete plan. And uh, we begin to see what God is going to do. There's a lot of things happening with Adam and Eve. I'm not going to be able to go into all of it. Some of the things I'm going to just say to you uh, and give you and talk about it without taking the time to get into all the nitty-gritty of it. Uh, those things uh, you'll pick up later. We'll cover it later. Or you can, you know, ask it in Thursday night Bible study if you want. Or you can come over and see me uh, and talk to me about it. But Adam and Eve really uh, begin for us the first, um, the first layout of what God is going to do. Uh, it says in, in, uh, in chapter 2 that, that when God makes man and then he puts him down in the garden, verse 7 of chapter 2, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. There's the three components of man. Uh, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There's his body, soul, and spirit. Now, not only do you have this, but the Bible, <coughs> the Bible makes it very clear when life begins and when life ends. And I know that, you know, in the medical world and in the religious world, um, everybody has their own idea of when life begins. Some people think life begins at conception. Some people, life begins uh, at, when, the, when the baby's in the womb after two or three months or when it gets to a certain point. They, or they can hear a heartbeat and they can do this and the baby moves and all that stuff. They begin to think that that's the, it is life. And of course, <clears throat> you just stick with the Bible. God will define for you when life begins as far as God is concerned. And that's really all that matters. And God will define for you when death takes place. And uh, the Bible makes it very clear that Adam was not a living soul till he breathed the breath of life. And from God's standpoint, a man or a woman, a baby, becomes a living soul uh, at the moment they breathe life. It doesn't matter about a heartbeat or any of those things. Uh, I'm not discounting that. I'm just telling you, God himself told you that he did not become a living soul till he breathed the breath of life. Now, at the same time, when you go over to the book of Genesis, we'll get there in time, I think it's Genesis 35, you find where God uh, defines death. And death is defined by when the soul leaves. 
And uh, those two things really set the precedent for everything that uh, you need to understand about uh, everything that's happening. And uh, the book of Genesis is a book that, as I said, it just covers so many, so many different things. So we see there in verse 7 that uh, in God's perspective, man becomes a living soul, and that's when he becomes alive. Uh, he becomes alive when he gets that soul. That's what separates man from animals. Animals uh, don't have souls. Man has a soul. And in God's contingency of things, that's when God equates life beginning. And that doesn't take away from the wrongness of abortion. It doesn't justify it in any way, shape, or form. All I'm telling you is that from the Bible, life begins when that man becomes a living soul, and he takes that when he takes the breath of life. That baby comes out of the womb, it starts to cry, it breathes in. That's when the Bible says it becomes a living soul, the breath of life. When the breath of life leaves, um, that's when God constituted as as death. Now, <clears throat> coming on down here in... Uh, verse uh, 5, 6, and 7, God puts them down, uh, uh, verse 8, and, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now, the thing that I want you to notice here is that he didn't name Eden. Eden was already there. And when you go back to Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14, you'll find that the Bible says that Lucifer uh, was in Eden, the garden of God, way back in Genesis chapter 1. So Eden, uh, Eden the place Eden was already here. God now just put a garden in it. And that's very instructive because he puts the man and woman down in this garden in Eden. Eden was a garden of God that Lucifer had dominion over. So now you begin to see in a very simplistic form what this is all about in history. It's about basically the devil getting kicked out of Eden, the garden of God, losing all his spiritual possessions, becoming Satan, God beginning to move on with his plan, he supplements the Lucifer with now a man and a woman who are sons of God to populate earth and then in time outer space and they're told to be fruitful, multiply and replenish the earth and then of course we see down through the course of history nothing more than the devil coming back after anybody who gets that piece of land because that land was his. And uh, he resents Adam and Eve putting, putting down in it. A little bit later, he's going to resent the nation of Israel getting it. And this is why we have the problems down through history, and it all centers around that piece of ground over there, um, which was given uh, as Eden, the Garden of God, which we'll find out a little bit later on was the original land grant that is given to Abraham. And it runs from Egypt over to Ur, which is Baghdad today, and then up in a northerly direction up to Mount uh, Ararat, up in uh, southern Turkey. <clears throat> and that is the original land grant that is given to Abraham. That is the Eden in the Bible. In there was a garden that God placed eastward in Eden. And, um, and so he puts Adam and Eve down in that garden, and the, obviously the devil uh, wants to get it back. So... The first thing that he does here when you look at the story of uh, Adam and Eve is that God gives them a commission. He tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and to uh, replenish the earth. And of course, the key word there is replenish. And all the Bible scholars, <clears throat> you know, who reject the gap, who reject 
uh, everything that is going on that the Bible is literally teaching, um, they get, that, that word sticks in their throat. Because if Adam and Eve was the first creation that God put down here, what are they to replenish? Replenish means to put something back that once was. And, uh, of course, it wasn't human beings. Everybody jumps to that conclusion. That's because they can't read the Bible. Adam and Eve may have been human beings, but more, they were sons of God. And what fell and left with Satan were sons of God. So what they are to replenish is the fallen sons of God, as sons of God. So we see that they're told to replenish. This is their great commit. This is their commission. And, of course, uh, the devil was going to stop that. And um, so look at chapter 3 here. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, um, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You should not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, again, uh, the magnitude of, and I, I have to keep asking myself how much I'm going to give you out of this, or otherwise I'll be at this spot for the next year alone. There's so much here. But the first thing I want you to know and understand um, is that you find three main names for uh, our friend the devil in the Bible. You'll find where he's called a serpent. You'll find where he's called Satan. And you find where he's called the devil. Now, each place, each name for him, and remember now, Jesus has three names, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the counterpart has three names, serpent, uh, Satan, and the devil. And when you find the word serpent, it's always going to be a reference to Genesis chapter 3 here, where he's deceiving the church. You want to remember that. Serpents is a great way to describe the devil when it comes to uh, his deceiving and destroying the church. Most people that don't have really good eyes in the woods and are not familiar with the woods never see the snake until it bites them that they just stepped on. Um, serpents are, are very well camouflaged. If you looked at any of them, uh, they blend in. They don't move a lot. Uh, they're very patient. They wait. Uh, they will go out at night. They hunt at night. Picture the church age. They, they will wait for hours without moving. Uh, for one little prey to come along and then strike. Uh, all the characteristics of what we see with the devil with the church. And in Genesis chapter 3, the model here is that Adam is a type of Christ, Eve's a type of the church. Now you're told this over there in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the fact that he's, he's worried about the church being uh, deceived by the devil. When he uses the term, or the phrase, or the example of Adam and Eve, as the, ser certain, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so he's afraid that the church's mind will be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's what, that's what the devil does. So when you find the word serpent, the context will always be in relationship to the deceiving of the church. When you find the word devil, or Satan, uh, as in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 3 and other places, it'll always be a relationship to him going after the nation of Israel. When you find the word devil, uh, you'll find it in a relationship to the first coming of Christ where he takes Christ in Matthew chapter 4 and he, he tries to get him to worship him. You want to remember that. 
That's three little things that are probably worth a million dollars a piece that will help you understand a context sometimes. So we see that in Genesis chapter 3, not only do we see the plan of God uh, laid out and the devil coming after it, and now you understand why, because this is his territory, but we also see uh, the first attack on the church. And when, when the devil came to Eve to destroy God's plan, and keep in mind, Eve is a type of the church. When he comes to Eve to destroy the plan of God, and the church has a plan, we're going to talk about it tomorrow in our final installment on the, going on the record on the church. When he came to destroy the plan of God, he gave us a model, God gave us a model and a pattern how he's going to destroy the church. The first thing out of the devil's mouth that you find recorded in the Bible as far as the chronology of the Bible is what he says to Eve. And he simply says to Eve, yea, hath God said. And then very cleverly, as very subtly, as a serpent, he just simply changed what God said. Now this is, this is the trick of the devil today. It, uh, I guess, you know, the longer you're in the Bible, the easier it is to see things. And sometimes we forget that people who have a nominal understanding of the Bible can't see the things that we so clearly can see. But it just never, I just understood how any intelligent being couldn't see this. I mean, there are people out there who to this day um, think that it's okay uh, to have any other Bible. When the evidence, the evidence is so against that, that there is no argument for it. And I've never understood the agenda in people's minds that they just want to hang on to the fact that the King James Bible is not the absolute perfect word of God and that the trick of the devil is to say, yea, hath God said, then simply change what God said. And the verse 1 says, Then the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of the tree of every tree of the garden. Now that's not what God said. See? So we see that when we see the serpent in the form of deceiving the church, we see that he's going to use the Bible. And his main mode of operation is going to simply change what God said. And people who, for whatever reason, want to reject Genesis chapter 3, for whatever reason, are faced with the fact that at the end of the day, uh, you're wrong. And uh, the devil's trick to destroy the churches is to do that. Now come over here, let me show you, come over here to... Second Corinthians. I'll show you the, I'll show you that going across the board here. Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Now it says in 11.1, I would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Now he's talking about, Paul's talking about the church and being given to Christ. 
at the, at the rapture when we meet Christ. And he says that he has espoused you to one husband. That husband is Christ, and the chaste virgin is the church. Now look what he says in verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtleties, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity of that in Christ. Now this is exactly what the devil has done. He's taken the easy, understandable Bible, the simplicity of it, and made it complex. And he's done this through the changing of the Word of God and taking the Bible out of the hand of the common man and putting it into the hands of scholarship or, or people who, um, you know, their agenda is to make the Bible as hard for you as you can. Now, this is the pattern you find in Genesis chapter 3. And, and then I want you to see verse 2. I want you to see how human nature plays into it. Once the devil baits you, here's what happens. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, here again, here's human nature. Human nature and the devil go hand in hand in two ways. Here the devil, first of all, he subtracts from the Word of God, and then when Eve gets involved, she adds to the Word of God. And you're going to find that that is the two-pronged attack that the devil is going to do. He's going to subtract from the Word of God, and then he's going to use men to add to the Word of God things that aren't there. And, of course, you can just go down through history and see that. By the time you get to the first coming of Christ, you've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Somebody added them in. God never put them in. You get to the church age, you've got Bible scholars and Bible colleges as the quote-unquote way to learn the Bible. God never ordained that. He ordained the church. So you see, and we could go on all day with that, you see that the main thrust of the devil is twofold, adding and subtracting from the Word of God. He'll subtract from it, but he'll get men to add to it. And in this case, Eve's ready, willing, and able and jumps right into it. And uh, the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing uh, good and evil. Now here is where the devil appeals to, and this is another thing. This is where the devil appeals to man uh, as you see him today. And the key word here that got Eve was knowing. We make fun of the fact that every woman wants to know, so she jumped right into the thing because she was going to get to know everything. And that, that's cute, but that's not what we got here. We got here man's desire to be like God, and knowledge will make him like God. Now, here's the problem. You need to be made with knowledge like God, but when you are made like God with God's knowledge, you become God-like. When you get outside the Bible and get knowledge that isn't God, then you become ungodlike. And that's the devil. And Eve wanted to know. Human nature wants to know. Knowledge, it wants to learn. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, nobody, everybody should be, you know, knowledgeable in about everything that they can. But you don't want your knowledge to supersede the principles of God by which you do. So you begin to see that God's first plan, laying this down, uh, and God beginning his program, the devil's going to come in and stop it. Now, we got a two. We got two hits here. In the Old Testament, historically, this is the beginning of God's structure in the Old Testament by which He's going to reach the world. 
and the devil comes in and stops it. But in this very model that we have, we also see the type and the picture and the model of God's structure in the New Testament that he's going to use the world. And we see how the devil is going to come in and, and stop that. I, I tell you all the time, and I don't know if you grasp it or not, the incredible parallels between God's structure of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and God's structure of the New Testament, the church. The parallels are unbelievable. Here is a place that in one place it shows you exactly what you have. And it's an incredible thing here. So we know the story. Eve gets beguiled. She takes of the forbidden fruit. And uh, her life has changed. Adam is, is nowhere around it when it all happens. Uh, the Bible doesn't say where he's at. But he's not there, obviously. And um, so uh, she takes the forbidden fruit. And when he, Adam comes home, uh, he sees that something has changed about Eve. And uh, now uh, he knows that she disobeyed God. And she... Uh, you know, she partook of the fruit. So Adam now is left with a choice. And Adam is, and this is where you see it all the time. Uh, I guess before I tell you that, I should show you the type there. That's a, this all is a picture of the church age. Eve's a type of the church. The devil comes to her to change what the Word of God said. Adam's a type of Christ. He's not there. That's a picture of the church age. Christ is not here right now. All you have is what God told you. And the devil wants to change that. Now, the real question is, how stupid are you? That's the question. I mean, that is so clear that the only way you couldn't get it is if your education gets in the way. Now, on top of that, we see this. We see that when push comes to shove... When push comes to shove, human nature will over, always supersede any relationship you have with God. Now, the plan is messed up right now. Half the, half the thing is gone. Eve, she's changed. She's no longer Snow White. And uh, everything has changed about her. She's now in a fallen state. Adam has a choice to make. And I try to tell you this all the time, and I try to get you to see it all the time, is that Adam and Eve were fellowshipping with God on a daily basis. Uh, God came down, obviously, in the cool of the day, and they fellowshiped together. And, and there again, that's a model of what we're going to do way out in eternity, when you get to your glorified body and you become Christ. But this is the model. So he's, he's obviously telling them all these things because we have a record of the things that he did say to them. And she had what God told her, just like you got what God told you. And so she fell. Adam now is faced with a choice to choose between her or God. And of course, he does what human nature will always do, and that is he chooses her over God. And that's what will happen every time. You've got to stay with the principles of the Word of God in every aspect of your life. If you don't, you will wind up going after whatever over what God told you to do. And that's where the failure comes in. And uh, now verse 7 says, The eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed together fig leaves 
uh, and made themselves apron. That's a picture of man's self-righteousness, trying to cover his own nakedness by things that he does. And of course, it's a fig tree. So from this point on, fig trees in the Bible will always be a picture of self-righteousness based on that right there. When you get over to the New Testament and, and Christ comes out and sees the fig tree that didn't bear any fruit, he curses it. That fig tree is a picture of the nation of Israel and their self-righteousness of not bearing any fruit. It's, it's set right here. All right, verse 8. <clears throat> and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking <clears throat> in, the, in, the, uh, in the garden. Now, I, I like that. And most people don't pay attention to words that, that close, but I like that. How does the, how does the voice of God walk? I mean, where are you going? I'm going to take my voice for a walk. <clears throat> how, does, how does a voice walk? You see what he's doing? He's drawing attention to what God says, not the person of God. Obviously, it was the angel of the Lord coming down here and walking in the garden, but he made it clear that he wanted you to know he's not put, during this period of time, that's a picture of the church, he was not putting the emphasis on the body of Christ. He's putting an emphasis on what he said, the voice, the voice. You have in that Bible in front of you the very voice of God, and it will walk with you all day long. And so now things have changed. Now you start to see the first aspect of when uh, somebody uh, gets out of fellowship with God, as Adam and Eve certainly was, and the word of God comes toward you, what do you do? You run and hide. Okay? Quit coming to church. Sit in the very back row. You, 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 know, you start showing up every other, every other Sunday and then every three Sundays and then pretty soon it's every other month and then the rest is history. You hide from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because you're out of fellowship now. Something is not right. And when you're out of fellowship with God, I'm going to tell you something. When you start to get out of fellowship with God, though you put a plastic smile on your face and you still come to church, it shows on your face that the least place you want to be is in God's presence. Amen. And it's just, it's so, it is. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And I always thought that was instructive. Come on, like God didn't know where he was. God knew exactly what bush he was hunting under. He was hiding under. And that brings up a great thing about the fact that when you and I get out of fellowship with God, God asked Adam where he was, even though God knew where he was. And God will ask you where you're at just to see if you're honest about where you're really at. He said to Jacob one time, what's your name? He knew what his name was. He wanted to see if Jacob knew what his name was. Supplanter, schemer. So you see in all of this here, everything that you find exactly the way it works with human nature today within the church. And uh, he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And he said, who told you that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree thereof I commanded? Now you know as well as I do, God already knows that he did. You see, the great quality about God is he'll give you a chance to fess up and be honest first, even though he knows the real bottom line. And we have the stupidity that we still lie to him. How dumb is that? <laughs> but as dumb as this. And the man said, the woman whom thou get... Now, here's the, here's the next thing. 
when we get out of fellowship with God. We always want to blame God for our problems. The woman, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Lord, the woman that you gave to me, putting it back on God. When Eve shows up here, she blames it on the poor devil. Which shows you that next thing about what happens in churches when people get out of the Word of God is the fact that they don't want to take any personal responsibility or accountability for what they do. It's always somebody else's fault. It's either preacher's fault, it's your fault, it's somebody else's fault. It's never their fault. And it gets right down to the fact that sometimes it's God's fault. Why did God do this to me? Because you deserve it. That simple. One of the things that you better learn in life quickly about your Christian life and your relationship with God, at the end of the day, we all get what we deserve. And when we don't get what we deserve, that's God's grace. God will give you exactly what you want. And as the old adage goes, be be careful what you ask for. You might get it. So from this point on, now we see um, that God begins to uh, put the enmity between it all. It's it's changed now. Uh, God, here again, God kills something innocent. He sets up the pattern in the Bible that the shedding of innocent blood has to cover our nakedness. God makes them a coat of skin. And... uh, Where's that verse at? Where did that? 21? Yeah. And of course, uh, over in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, when it talks about salvation, it's called the garments of salvation, making the connection back to here. Um, so we, we see what happens. Uh, Adam and Eve, this is the first time you find the tree of life showing up. The tree of life is very important in the Bible. You only find the tree of life in two places as a literal tree. You find it here, and you find it in Revelation chapter twenty-two, fourteen. Once you figure out that Re- the Genesis is a picture of what's going to take place in eternity, and this is the model for it, then you understand why it is. When you don't see that, then you obviously like the word replenish here. Um, when you get scholarship involved, they think it's a mistranslation, as they do First Revelation twenty-two, fourteen. So they have to change it. Uh, they can't just believe the Bible as it's written because they don't believe the Bible at all. They put their own education above God and the Word of God and think they're smart enough to correct what God said. And God is dumb enough that he couldn't write a book that he could preserve. That's where you're at this morning. Congratulations. So, so you begin to see here the issue becomes um, very quickly that uh, um, there's two great models here. We see the model of what God is doing historically, beginning of his plan through the nation of Israel. Then we also see the what it's going to be in the New Testament, God and His church, and how the devil is going to attack both. That information is invaluable. And of course, uh, this is why understanding these things componently will clear up a lot of questions for you. Now we get into Genesis chapter 4, and this is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible, and one of the most unknown chapters in the Bible. And here's the story of of Cain and Abel. And... uh, Anybody who has any time in the Bible working with people um, can, can read human nature pretty quickly. And um, it, it says in 4.1, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have, I've gotten a, Lord, a man from the Lord. 
And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, I'm going to approach this passage from a pure looking at human nature standpoint. First thing I want you to see, and most people don't get this because you don't study the Bible, uh, Cain and Abel are twins. And somebody says, well, the Bible doesn't say that. Yeah, it does. You just don't know where to look. In the Bible, it'll always list the birth and the conception separately. Here you have one conception and you have two births. These are boys or twins. That's just a little thing that's in the Bible that you probably never picked up. But you don't believe it. But you have two boys here that are born, they're twins, but only one conception mentioned. And it always bothers me. I listen to what people say. I think you can rat out somebody quicker by listening to what they say than by talking to them. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It always struck me funny that the Bible says, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare Abel as keeper of the sheep, but Cain with the two on the ground. She, she draws attention to the fact that Cain was a man from the Lord, but when Abel's born, she doesn't say a thing. Now, that always struck me funny. I know human nature. <clears throat> I know that when we do something wrong, human nature, to hide what we did wrong, we always want to bring God into it. And uh, that's just a trait of human nature, because we think if we bring God into it, that buys us some legitimacy. And yet, what she says here is completely backwards, because as it turns out, Cain is not a man from the Lord. And what we have here is the fact that one is a tiller of the ground, the other one is a keeper of sheep. So she gets it completely backwards. And then we know that in the process of time, we know what happens. They both bring an offering to the Lord. Cain gets his offering rejected. Abel gets his offering accepted. And uh, so what we have here now is a uh, is the first murder in the Bible where Cain uh, kills Abel. And, and that's, that's about as far as anybody can really will take it today because of they're so shallow in the Bible. But when you start to put all of the facts together and you start to look at what you have here, uh, there's something going on. Now let me tell you what happened here first. And then I'm going to come back and show you the process of putting it together. Here's what happened. The devil wants to stop the plan of God. So he shows up when Eve is not there. He changes what the Word of God says. He gets her to take of a forbidden fruit. He has sex with her, and he impregnates her. So where do you get that? It's in the Bible. You just don't know where to look. You say, why did I get that? Oh, come on. The, the, the forbidden fruit in the Bible is a vine tree. Every time a guy wants to take, care, take advantage of a gal, you know the first thing he does? He buys her a drink off the vine tree. You don't get out much. If that wasn't all, if that wasn't all, we find that uh, when this boy does show up, that she tries to cover it up by saying he's a man from the Lord when he wasn't. If that wasn't all, come back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and look what Paul says again, looking at it with a fresh set of eyes based on where we're at and what we're looking at now.
All right, let's look at 11.1 again. Let's read it now. Let's read it from another angle. 11.1, I would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, uh, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now he's talking to the church, and he's saying that he wants to espouse the church to one husband, and that husband is Christ. But then look what he says. But as I fear, by least by means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, the subject matter here is virginity. And he's saying here, he's saying them that uh, he presented uh, the church uh, as a chaste version to Christ, but that what he's saying, the, the example of that not happening is Eve. And the key word here is the word beguiled. You take the Old Testament and you take the word beguiled, go back to Numbers chapter 25 and a number of other places, you'll find that every time you find the word beguiled, it's always dealing with physical sex. Pure and simple. You couldn't miss it unless you just wanted to. Beguiling in the New Testament will have to do with your spiritual fornication against God. In the Old Testament, it has to do with literal fornication. You just want to write that down. Now, if that wasn't enough, come over here to 1 John. Chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, look at verse 12, talking about Cain. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and therefore slew he him, because he, his own works were evil in his brother's righteousness. Or brother's righteous. Now that verse clearly tells you that Cain was of that wicked one. You say, well, that just means spiritually. Well, that can't be. They all were. At this time, they all were of the of the wicked one spiritually. <laughs> that ain't going to work. <laughs> there wasn't anybody of God at all now by Genesis 3 and 4. After the fall, they're all of that wicked one. He's not talking about in a spiritual sense. There's no spiritual sense to it. We're in the kingdom of heaven. The literal sense here is Cain was of that wicked one. Literally. Physically. Okay, here's what you got. Come back to Genesis 4. In the medical world and pregnancies and all that stuff, I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, but you have what they call a bicarbonate uterus. That means that two men can have sex with the same woman in a period of time, and she can have give twins by both men. There was a case here in Kansas City just a couple of years ago. It was in the paper, and there was a big article on it. So here's what happened. The devil knows God's plan, and he knows that God's plan, that's he got kicked out of the garden, he knows that God's plan is to put Adam and Eve down there, and he knows that Adam and Eve are going to uh, be fault, multiply and replenish the earth, and he knows out of Adam and Eve is going to come the line of Christ. He wants to stop that line. So he's looking at it like this. I'll get in there first, 
I'll get her to fall. I'll impregnate her with my boy. I know Adam's going to impregnate her, and they're going to have two boys. One of them is going to be of that wicked one. One of them is going to be after Christ. Christ is called the second Adam in that line. So he looks at, he looks at Abel as being the line by which Christ is going to come through. So he comes down. <coughs> he impregnates Eve. She gets impregnated by Adam. She has two twins. She knows what she's done. She, she says, I've gotten a man from the Lord to take the, take the pressure off. He wasn't a man from the Lord. First John 3 says he's of the wicked one. Paul told us that the church being espoused to Christ as a virgin, he's worried about it because Eve wasn't when Adam got her. So, <clears throat> here's the plan. Devil looks at, see that changes the dynamics now. Because if Cain was of the wicked one, then he wasn't Adam's. If you look at it as everybody looks at it, you have Cain and Abel. Abel, uh, Cain was Adam's firstborn. Abel was his secondborn. But that's not the way it worked. Cain was of the wicked one, so that means Abel's the firstborn of Adam. So the devil figured this. He figured, I'll come down, I'll mess up the plan, and I'll get my boy who is the first type of the Antichrist, by the way, in the Bible. A little bit later on, he gets a mark, like the Antichrist. He's the first of the 18 types of the Antichrist in the Bible. He's number one, just in case you didn't have that. He gets his boy to kill Adam's boy, from which the devil perceives is going to come the line of Christ, therefore shutting down the line of Christ. Now, here's the problem with that little bit of theology. Devil walks into the throne room and says, uh, well, I guess I messed up your plan. Now what are you going to do? God says, what do you mean? How would you mess up my plan? He says, well, you know, you know what I did in the garden. He says, yeah, I know. I know. I know. We got it covered. He says, well, he says, uh, you know, uh, everybody down through history is going to believe that uh, Cain and Abel were Adam's first two boys. Uh, Well, we got that covered really good. They're so stupid, they'll never figure it out. But he says, in truth of the matter, um, you know, uh, um, Cain was my boy of the wicked one. God says, yeah, I'm going to write that down a little bit later on. We'll get that in there. And he says, that means that, that, uh, that uh, Abel was Adam's firstborn. And my boy just killed the firstborn of, of Adam. So therefore, the seed's done. The Lord just kind of looked at him and he says, you read your Bible this morning? You must have missed something. You're right, 100% right. Cain is of the wicked one. Write that down. We'll put over in First John here. We'll get it in at the end before we're done. We'll put it way back in the back so nobody will ever catch it. <laughs> Except Bob Alexander. He'll catch it. But anyway, we'll put it way back in the back. And he'll tell his people and they'll catch it. He said, we'll put that way back here. You're right. You're right. You're right. Adam, uh, Adam, Adam's firstborn uh, was not Cain. He's your firstborn. His firstborn was, uh, was Abel. And you killed Abel, and you think you got it all worked out now because Abel was going to bring the seed through. But I got news for you. Abel was not going to bring the seed through because Abel was the firstborn. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know the blessing's always in the second because you must be born again. So Abel's not going to bring the seed through. Seth is going to bring it through. He's the secondborn. You must be born again. And it runs all the way through the Bible, through the second birth. All the way through. You couldn't miss it unless you just wanted to. I got that in the first year of Bible college. Yeah, right. 
So we see now that Adam and Eve is a great picture of the fall of man. It's a great picture of everything that is going on that's going to formulate where it all goes. And uh, we see that this is the first attempt of many, many, many attempts throughout the Bible and throughout history and certainly throughout church history for the devil to destroy the plan of God and to set himself back up. The devil's obvious devil's ultimate goal is to be God. He accomplishes this for a very short time in the tribulation period, which is called the abomination of desolations, where he actually sits in the throne of God and claims to be God. It happens there. But he wants it now. This is why the war in the Middle East has raged on for centuries. All through the Old Testament, uh, all through the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you'll see as we come through here and we study it, you'll see how the devil keeps, while Israel's down in Egypt for 430 years, he's packing that land over there with giants and sons of God and his crowd to keep them out. It's, it's, it's been all through history. All through history. Right now the Muslims have it. And everybody thinks, you know, uh, you know that uh, uh, all this is about, you know, it, it's all about Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. That's where it all starts. Everything else is just the parsley on the, on the side of the steak that you never eat. But it's there to make it look good. And it's, it's saying this is where you're at. So we see that Adam and Eve now, we begin to, we begin to see the first plan of God destroyed. And um, we begin to see now that God doesn't get upset about it. God uses the things that the devil does to, to put his own plan into play. And he adjusts in flight to make things happen because God knows that the ultimate goal he has is not going to be stopped by the devil. You know, that would be a great principle for all of us to learn today because the devil is always going to throw things in your life. And when you realize at the end of the day, the goal that God has for you is what God's going to finish, you won't get upset about the things and the bumps in the road and the sidetrack. You'll just realize that that's just the way that God had to deal with it too. And as he worked around his, he'll help you work around you to get to the ultimate goal. That's just the way it works. Okay. Genesis chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Your fourth section. And this will be bring us up to the flood of Noah. And uh, you're going to find that in Genesis chapter 5 here, um, you're going to find that time moves on. Adam uh, verse 3, lives 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image. And he called his name Seth. There's Seth. I want you to notice that it's in, it's in Adam's image, no longer God's image. He's in a fallen state now. Verse 5 tells us that Adam and Eve lived 930 years and he died. And uh, verse 4 says that uh, he, uh, he begets sons and daughters. Yeah, most people think that the only kids that he had was was Cain, Abel, and Seth. Of course, we know that Cain wasn't in the picture. But here the verse tells you that he lives for 930 years and he has kids all that time. So, you know, there again, Bible will put it in perspective for you. Then we go down through the line of Seth here. And in the line of Seth, you have a guy by the name of Enoch. Um, Enoch is a great type of the church. Uh, Enoch gets raptured out. Enoch walked with God, was not, for God took him. He's a picture of the church. Uh, you have the flood, which is the picture of Noah, type of the nation of Israel, going through the tribulation period. So you have the rapture of the church going out right before the 
judgment of God falls through the flood. Uh, you have an incredible picture here, again, the second time, that the uh, devil has come back down and taken control. Uh, where he couldn't do it through Cain. He comes down now, but it'll always be connected with sex. You got to know that. It'll always be connected with sex. When the nation of Israel gets into Baal worship, the main theme of Baal worship is sexual perversion. Sex with uh, women, uh, men with men, uh, women with women, uh, men with animals, people with dead people, uh, called necromancing. Uh, all of it is perverted uh, and, uh, you know, in uh, all that we have. Somebody says today, well, I think homosexuality is just a sickness and a person is born that way. I think you need to spend more time in Sunday school. You go all the way back. You're going to see that the first, first homosexual act in the Bible happens with Noah. And uh, it just goes on from there. But that's probably a little over your head right now. But anyway, so we start to see that Genesis chapter 6, again, 6-1, and it came to pass when the men began to multiply upon the face of the earth. They only had added and subtracted up to that point. Somebody figured out the multiplication tables, and now they're multiplying. Um, the, the face of the earth, that was not serious. You don't write that down. <laughs> that the sons of God, ah, there they are, the sons of God. Boy, scholarship has a tough time with this one, too. They just have a tough time believing. I would dare to say that you probably could not find five churches in this city that believe that the sons of God are what the Bible defines them to be. The standard teaching in Bible college is the sons of God are saved people. And, uh, you know, and when it says down here, uh, uh, when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair and they looked them wise of all which they chose. Scholarship just can't accept the Bible the way it is because they hate the Bible. And some of the nicest, sweetest, kindest people I've ever met in my life, when it came down to accepting that Bible as the Word of God, were some of the most venomous hatred for that book that you ever saw in your life. And I've never understood that. In many cases, all what the Word of God has done for them and their families, and yet they just, they just, they just can't get there. So scholarship says that the sons of God and the daughters of man, oh, they could not be fallen angels, uh, because angels are sexless, you know, angels are neuter even though the Bible says that every time they show up in the Old Testament, they're men. They didn't say they're neuters, they're men. You'd think that God would know how to spell neuter versus men. I can't. I'm not sure how to spell neuter, but, but God could. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it couldn't be the sons of God. So they have to make it the saved men marrying ungodly women or unsaved women. And uh, that's the standard teaching in every Bible college, probably 99% of the churches that you're going to go to in this city, in this country, in this state, uh, wherever. That is the standard uh, cut-off baloney that uh, they pass out. And the only one dumbers are the guy that teach that or the people who believe it by listening to them. And, uh, you know, I've, I've never understood, I've never understood it, why uh, that people can't take it to the next step. Uh, if these were saved people here, marrying unsaved people, and they teach in the Old Testament, uh, they teach Bible colleges and churches, pastors, they teach that in the Old Testament, you're, they were saved just like you're saved. The standard baloney is that they look forward to the cross and somehow got into cross by looking forward to it. We look back to the cross. And of course, that's not true. You couldn't support that in the Bible anywhere, but then nothing that they teach you can support in the Bible. So what's the point? So uh, I've never understood why people didn't take it to the next level. If this is saved people marrying unsaved people, and there were saved people in there during this period of time, how come they didn't get on the ark? 
I mean, the bus is not running that morning. I mean, have all these saved people marrying unsaved people, why didn't they just get to the ark? Why did God say a little bit further on uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, verse 5, that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every imagination of his thoughts and his heart was evil uh, continually? Where, where is the saved people in that? I mean, uh, I just, I, I don't get it. And of course, when you have to change the Bible, you can't go very far past that because it's going to trip you up. Because the Bible is the book that will, will slam you uh, when you teach it wrong because you're going to run into some place that's going to contradict what you just said. So you better have it exact. Let me tell you something. I spent almost 50 years of my life trying to be exact with that Bible. I'm not saying I am all the time, but I'll tell you what, I try to do it every chance all the way that I can because I realize that the one key word when it comes to teaching the Bible is exactness. If you don't know it for exactment, then shut up and don't say anything. Or preface it by saying, I don't get this, but here's what I'm looking at. But don't get dogmatic about something you don't understand. So you have the sons of God showing up. And here again, nothing more than the fallen angels by Satan coming down to take over the world, by which he's going to run the world, and he's going to get back where he once was, Eden, the Garden of God. And uh, he's going to uh, use these giants to do that. And so he's, uh, you know, he's, they're coming down and they're having, they're having sex with, with uh, human beings, women. And uh, this is another thing I never figured out. If it's saved people marrying unsaved people, uh, how are they producing a race of giants? I mean, um, I got saved people marrying unsaved people all the time today. I don't see any giants. I mean, uh, what's the difference? What happened? And again, when you get outside the Bible and try to make it up because you don't know the Bible, you get into trouble. And um, he says down there at the end of verse 4 that these same mighty men were men of old, men of renown. Uh, they made an impact. When you go back in mythology today, whether it be Egyptian mythology, Roman mythology, uh, you know, Germanic mythology, everybody's got their own mythology. They always talk about the gods. You got Thor, you got Zeus, you got Jupiter, you got Atlas, you got them all. Those are all mighty men. You got Hercules, you got Andromeda, you got Perseus, you got all of them. You know, you got Orion the Mighty Hunter. You got all of them. Okay? These guys, because these people came down from the stars, they named the stars and the universe after them. And, uh, you know, here again. The pattern has been set. The sons of God came down. I, I guarantee you they did not come. I mean, this is a very sophisticated society. This is the time period where Atlantis, which is known as the Lost Continent, was in play. This is a time where there was no Atlantic or Pacific Ocean. There were seas, but there was no oceans. So all were the Atlantic and the, and the Atlantic. And the, and the Atlantic's a mud puddle compared to the Pacific. All that was dry land. And all those cities they're finding down there, all those remnants of all those places and those great causeways that they find, and some of it's buried under 15 miles of water, all that was places back in Genesis chapter 6 that were viable places and have survived through mythology. And uh, they all were run by the sons of God, who the devil came down to take over this world and did for a period of time. And, uh, you know, it always, there again, this is why you think when that happened, God would... God would get upset, 
get paranoid like we do when some catastrophe falls in our life. We panic. Somebody ran into the throne room and said, you ain't going to believe this, Lord. Um, the devil just, uh, he just unleashed the greatest trick. Well, I don't know what we're going to do now. I mean, your plan is done. I mean, it's over. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, Lord, but he just, he's got all his sons of God down there. They're having sex with those women. They're producing a race of giants, and they're taking over the whole earth. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do. And I'll tell you what, it's really a mess, and I don't know what. We just, we, I, don't, I mean, I thought we were going to, I, you know, and, and he, well, Lord, what are you going to do? He just leaned back and said, oh, it's going to rain. <laughs> going to rain. See how easy that was? to the most complicated problem in your life, God has the simplest solution. We just have a tough time believing it. We, we run into the throne room just like whoever I was making this story up ran into the throne room telling God about the great disaster. God just went back and said, oh yeah, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. Ho-hum, rain. R-E-I-N, rain. Pennies from heaven. Every time it rains, it rains. Pennies from heaven. It's going to rain. No big deal. How's rain going to stop everything the devil's doing? Well, rain's a funny thing. You know, I, I won't even get into the theological aspect that rain's water, and water's a type of the word of God, and you want to you wipe out evil on the earth, just fill it up with water. We don't even go there today. See how simple it is? Man has an absolute ferocious tendency to make the Word of God so complicated. Now, I've been talking now for, I don't know, I can't see my watch. I've been talking for a while. Have I, I've given you more information than you probably have gotten in the last 10 years of your life. Was any of it complicated? Did I use any words you couldn't understand? See, I can't do that because I don't understand a lot of words, so i got to keep them. Sometimes I say words, and afterwards I said, boy, I hope that was an okay word to use. And I'm telling you, what the devil has done, he's accomplished the plan. He destroyed in most of our lives the simplicity that's in Christ. It's just too simple. We always got to look to scholarship for the answer. When you have the book that God gave you, that you just, you got everything you need right there. And you don't need anything more than a sixth grade education. And that's just the way it is. So, God says, well, I'm going to drown the whole thing out. And uh, so what happens is, is that God told Noah to make an ark. And, uh, but there are so many great Prince, so many great messages on, on Noah, out of Noah. I mean, he's, he's an incredible guy. Noah, uh, Noah uh, God waited 120 years after he told Noah what he was going to do to give man a chance to repent. And that is a great principle in itself. It tells me that God is no, in no hurry to destroy you. Now listen to what I'm about to say because it's really profound. God is in not any hurry to destroy you. So why are you in such a hurry to destroy yourself? See? Gave him 120 years. I mean, this is some real wickedness going on. 
And all God just looked up there and everybody's panicking, dying, what's going on? God just said, yeah, how long has it been? 70 years. No time at all. Rain, rain, go away, come again some other day. That's what they're going to be saying. You know? And uh, so uh, after 120 years, he said, okay, boys, rain time. And Noah preached for 120 years. Noah, in, in one sense, has always been a great hero of mine because in a lot of ways he pictures, he pictures what your life and my life should be. I'm sure it, does, it doesn't say, and, but I know human nature. I'm sure Noah struggled with, with, with what he was doing. I mean, can you imagine he's building a boat the size of an aircraft carrier in his backyard and people are asking why and he's telling them because God's going to bring judgment on the earth in a world that was already so religious that they thought God would never judge anybody like it is today. And then he tried to explain that God was going to bring a rain in a world that didn't know what rain was because it had never rained? Try that on for size. Well, I bet they thought he was crazy. And I'm sure there was times in his life that he wondered if for 120 years, if he was building that thing, having people laugh at him. Every time he went down to the lumber yard, they made jokes about him. And I'm telling you, it looks like that Noah stood for 120 years all by himself. I don't know what his wife and his boys were doing. The Bible doesn't say they were involved in any of it. Just focuses on him. And maybe that's for a reason. But I think it shows me that, you know what, in the time period that I'm living in, good chance that I'll wind up standing for the Lord alone. And it's a good chance you may too. And the question is, can you do that? Can you do that? Do you have what it takes do you have what it inside you to be able to do that? Or do you fold up like a broken accordion? And so it's, it's one of those things where you, it's an incredible. So he makes that ark. That ark is a type of the universe. There's three levels to it, three heavens. There's a window and a door in it. You'll find in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 7-11 and 2 Kings chapter 7-2 and 7-19, that there's windows in heaven. There's a door in that ark in the side. You'll find it in Malachi chapter 3 and John chapter 10, Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 19, Matthew chapter 25. There's a door going up into heaven. It's a type of the three heavens. That ark's also a type of Christ. That was the place where Noah found his salvation. The Bible says that Noah moved with fear, preparing a ark of the saving of his household. He got in that ark through a, through a door in the side. You got in Christ through a hole in his side that brought about the church when that Roman soldier put the spear in it. So, you can see how it's an incredible picture. At the same time, the, it's a picture of the, Noah's flood is a picture of the tribulation period. You have Enoch going up right before it. Then you have the tribulation itself typified by, um, by, the, uh, by the judgment of God. And uh, it's a thing where um, when that thing, you know, everybody thinks that when it rained, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. 
And uh, everybody thinks, uh, and here again, this is just, you know, this is just the way it, it, people go. Uh, when the Bible talks about God killing everybody, you'll notice he never says that he drowns them. He tells you that God uh, killed them, everything that had the breath of life in them. That's very instructive. Because, uh, you know, the Bible tells you that uh, uh, when the rain came, that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And, um, you know, people have always asked me, well, <clears throat> you know, why didn't, why didn't people just swim over to the ark and climb up on the ark? You know, I mean, why didn't people, um, when it started to rain and Noah, the door got shut, uh, why didn't they just throw ladders up and climb up on top of the ark and bring whatever food and water they have and, and just ride it out on top of the ark? I mean, uh, how about the birds that didn't, uh, uh, that didn't get in the ark? Well, how, did, how come they didn't survive? I mean, uh, they could just fly up and sit on top of the ark. And, of course, the answer to that is found in, uh, you know, uh, when you look at it and you, you, you put it all together, that uh, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And um, when you uh, put that into a mathematical formula, that Mount Everest is the highest mountain on the world. And the Bible says that it got to the, it went 40 cubits, or I think, over the tops of the mountains. Um, when you put that into the mathematical equation, um, that water came down 725 feet a day, 13 feet a minute. In other words, when the reason why he says that all died that had the breath of life, you cannot breathe in that kind of rainfall. If you want just a nice little example of it, when you shake a shower the next time, and I know all of you now will do this, turn the shower on full bore, put your nose up into it, and try to breathe. <laughs> you can't. 725 feet a day, 13 feet a minute. I'll tell you what, that thing didn't rain more than three or four minutes and the mightiest son of God was treading water and nobody could breathe. And it's a thing where, um, you know, these are the things that you see here that, that are behind the, the ark itself of what God is doing. And um, what you have here, again, is, uh, is how this whole thing kind of plays out and lays itself out of what God is doing. And uh, the flood, uh, the flood is a, is a picture of, like I said, it's a picture of the universe, the water coming down uh, and all of that. It's a picture of, of Christ, you being safe in Christ. And it's a picture of God protecting the nation of Israel through his judgment in the tribulation period. And, uh, you know, there's just, uh, there's just so much there. And the thing I want you to notice, too, is that uh, the Bible makes it very clear that when it was time for the flood, uh, that God shut the door. And when God shut the door, nobody could open it. Noah couldn't open it from the inside. Nobody could open it from the outside. That's a picture of Christ. And let me tell you something. When God shuts the door, you don't get in. You better get in while you can. God gave him 120 years to get in. But when God shut the door, that door stays shut. 
And so it's a thing where you see all of that and it all begins to, you know, uh, uh, play out for you and everything begins to um, just kind of lay itself out. Now, the next thing I want you to see here in this time period is over here in Genesis chapter 8. I gave you the wrong area. It was 725 feet a day, 30 feet an hour, 6 inches a minute is what it was. Now, in chapter 8, we start to see the waters coming down. Noah perceives that God is about to, uh, they're going to land. And so what he does here in chapter 8 is one of the most um, the average person just reads it. They never really pick up on it. But I want to read it for you in verse 6 with the paragraph mark. Uh, I, first of all, I want to, I want to um, let's start with verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and, a, and the waters assuaged. To swayed is an old English word. It means it began to go down. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested on the seventh month, uh, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Arat. Now that's very important because, as I told you before, the original Eden is the land grant that we're going to see here in just a little bit that was given to Abraham. That land grant, as I told you, runs from Egypt over to Ur, which is Baghdad today, and then all the way up to Turkey. So, at the end of this flood, at the end of this flood, when the ark comes to rest, it comes to rest at the very top of that pyramid of the land grant. And when those three boys come out, they go right down into the land that was going to be promised to Abraham, which is the Eden, the Garden of God. It all centers around there. Now, verse 6 says, And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which uh, went to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. The dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. She returned unto him under the ark for the waters on the face of the earth and then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her into him into the ark. And he stayed yet another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came in in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. He stayed yet another seven days, and he sent forth a dove which returned not again unto him any more. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to bracket some verses. The first verse, I want you to bracket. And, I, and if you have a red china marker, I wouldn't do it in yellow. I would, I, something that stands out for you. The first verse I want you to bracket is verse 7. I want you to put that in a bracket by itself. The next bracket of verses is going to be 8 and 9. I would bracket it on both sides of the verses so it stands out very prominently. Do not bracket verse 10. Verse 10 is unbracketed. Bracket verse 11. 
and then bracket verse 12. Now, we talked about the fall of the devil and the gap and all that stuff when we came through the first week, and I told you how nobody believes it today. The Bible colleges don't teach it. Scholarship doesn't teach it. Evangelicals wouldn't even hear of it. They, they're so screwed up, they don't know what they're talking about. But I'm going to tell you why we teach it, why the Bible lays it out, and I'm going to show you how that you know that the things that I tell you are true. Because what you have here in this Old Testament story is a picture that kind of brings us up through the whole course of the Bible. Now, I want to walk you through it now. I told you how to bracket the verses first. Now, I'm going to tell you what to put by the bracketed verses. Verse 7. And he sent forth a raven. Oh, let's pick it in 6. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened a window. That window is a picture of the window in heaven. Now, what goes forth first in verse 7 is a raven. A raven in the Bible is an unclean animal. It's a type of Satan. So what you have in verse 7 is the devil leaving heaven through that window. And notice the words to and fro until the waters are dried up off the earth. Now the waters are not dried up off the earth from a Bible sentence to Revelation chapter 21 where there is no more sea. The word to and fro is very instructive because when the devil comes to God's throne in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 and 3, when God asks him where he's at and what he's doing, he says he's walking up to and fro in the earth. So what you have in verse 7, verse 6, God opens the window of heaven, and what you have is what takes place in Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, the devil, typified by the raven, leaving the presence of God and then going to and fro till Revelation chapter 21. <laughs> See if you can get all that in there. Verse 8, also he sent forth a dove. Now the dove is going to be a type of the Holy Spirit of God. Also, he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him under the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth, and he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her uh, into the ark. Now, here in verse 8 and verse 9, the Holy Spirit goes out of that same window. Ark's a type of the universe. The Holy Spirit of God is looking for a place to rest. She finds no place to rest, so after a period of time, she comes back. That'll be a picture of the Holy Spirit of God dealing with man from Adam up to the law. No rest for the Holy Spirit of God. No place for her to dwell. Verse 10, then he stays yet another seven days. I want you to notice that this thing is all precedented through seven days, and that's because the Bible says that man's going to be on their thirst for 6,000 years and a 7,000 year, God's going to set up his millennial reign. That's why. Verse 11, after seven days, uh, verse 10, I'm sorry. And he stayed yet another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And a dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so no one knew that the waters were baited from off the earth. Now, this dove goes out and comes in in the evening. Notice the other ones up here. Uh, it doesn't say uh, when they came back, but now it says the evening. And lo and behold, what's in her mouth is an olive branch. An olive branch is the symbolic symbol of the nation of Israel. So what we have in verse 10 and 11 is God in the Old Testament from the law up to Christ under the symbol of the olive tree, olive branch, the nation of Israel, whose day starts in the evening and the morning. Couldn't miss it unless you wanted to. Now, verse 12, 
And he stayed yet another seven days, and he sent forth a dove which returned not again unto him any more. That's a picture of the church age. The Holy Spirit of God doesn't come back to God because she, now she found a place to rest. She's the indwelling of every believer on this planet who trusts Christ as her own personal Savior. What? No, you're not. That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. See how that thing worked? Now, you like your new modern translation? You think the King James Bible is not superior? You change one word of that and you couldn't figure that out. And you know why you don't care if you change one word and you couldn't figure it out? You don't want to figure it out anyhow. I got your number. So we begin to see here how this thing all plays out. Now Genesis chapter 9, we've got to move here so we can get uh, at least done with this one. I'll try to get through two a, two a time so I don't overwhelm you. Now, in Genesis chapter 9, the Bible says that God blessed Noah and his sons and be fruitful unto them. Notice he gives Noah the same commission he gave Adam, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Noah was to put something back. That's all the people that drowned in the flood. Adam was supposed to put something back. That's all the sons of God that get wiped out in the flood between 1-1 and 1-2. Boy, that Bible's incredible. No, it works. It's called consistency. Now he lays down 5 and 6, the principle for capital punishment. If you kill somebody, you get killed. Uh, verse 13, you want to mark that in your Bible. The only two times you find a rainbow in the Bible. This is the first time. The second time is in Revelation chapter 4, 3, and then 10, 1. But they're the same event. That'll be at the second coming of Christ. Clearly showing you that, uh, uh, that the, uh, uh, the time of the flood here uh, has to do with the uh, time that God is dealing with the nation of Israel. Uh, they're connected. Picture of God's judgment. Then in chapter of 9, verse 20. I want to show you the first act of homosexuality in the Bible. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine which, which, and was drunken, and was uncovered within his tent. Now, I've got to tell you this, um, that after the flood, some things change. When the flood happened, it changed some things. One of the main things that changed is longevity of life. You'll find that up to before the flood, man lived to be almost a thousand years. After the flood, that time is cut in half. By the time you get to Moses and Abraham, they're dying about 175 years. It radically was reduced. The change in the atmosphere changed some things by God's design. And obviously, one of the things that changes that Noah, um, it seems like, didn't know that, that what he was getting off the vine tree would ferment. And so he's drinking it and said, wow, that tastes pretty weird. Pretty good, but weird. I'm going to have another slug of that. First thing you know, he was drunk. And the Bible says, and he drank of the wine and was drunken and was uncovered within his tent. Uh, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went in backwards and covered uh, the nakedness of their father and their faces that were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. Now, let me first say this to you. Um, this is the first act of homosexuality in the Bible. And I know if you read that, you wouldn't get that out of there. Uh, it would have been a lot easier if God would have said, this is the first act of homosexuality in the Bible. But then the Bible says, the study of the show thyself approved. And uh, 
we're finding that uh, what happened here is, I'll tell you, then I'll come back and put it together. Noah gets drunk. Ham, who has a sex problem, Ham is going to represent the line that winds up being the bear worship line from Cain, who is going to have a sex problem. He sees his daddy laying there naked, and he has sex with him, act of homosexuality. Now, here again, I can hear scholars are going crazy. Oh, like this here. They're just wetting their pants, you know, and just having a heart attack. Um, and, of course, the standard teaching is here that, that, he, uh, that he just saw him naked and was embarrassed. So he went and told his other two brothers, Daddy's naked. So they got, they got a blanket and walked back in so they wouldn't see their naked daddy and then covered him up. <sighs> Scholarship. Gotta love it. But as I said, when you try to make up the Bible didn't true, the Bible always comes back and bites you. Look at verse 24. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had. You finish it. Done unto him. You just can't get around from the Bible. See? You just can't. Uh, you just can't. And um, if you go through your Bible, you will find that the Bible defines, um, come over to Leviticus chapter 18. The Bible defines uncovering somebody's nakedness as the actual act of sex. And God did it this way, so he would throw a monkey wrench into scholarship who didn't believe the Bible anyhow, because once you don't accept the Bible and you don't go to it for every one of your answers, he locks it down. You can't get anything out of it. So you think he just saw his nakedness. And then you show you get down to verse 24 when it says what he done unto him, you either just ignore it or you change it. What a, what a great, great way to go through life, just changing what you don't like. Now look at Leviticus chapter 18. Um, yes? What was the reference on the, in Leviticus 8, chapter 18? That's where we're going right now. I didn't give you the reference. I just said Leviticus 18. It's okay. It's okay. Pick it up in verse... 19. Now, there's a whole list of things here, but I want to read about the, what it says here. Look at verse uh, uh, 19. Also, thou shalt not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is put apart for her uncleanliness. That means she's on her period. So you can't have sex with her when you're on her period. For obviously, for... Clean, um, cleanliness reasons in, the, in Israel. Uh, also, uh, moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. Uh, thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire of Molech, and that's talking about your children. Now, you look at verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, and then verse 18 and verse 19. It all starts out with somebody... Uh, uncovering the nakedness, and it's the act of sex. Now, just so you wouldn't miss it, just so you wouldn't miss it, you got one in verse 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 times that I'm counting here, 12 times that he uses the term uncover the nakedness, and it's always dealing with the physical act of sex. Now, I want to draw your attention, uh, verse 6. 
None of you shall approach to any that is near kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. Look who is the first one is. Verse 7, the nakedness of thy father. Genesis chapter 9. Just so you wouldn't miss it. But you'll miss it. You'll miss it. You'll miss it because you want to miss it. Now he comes on down through here and finish up with this. He curses Cain, and then he pronounces three judgments on the three boys. Now Cain, uh, excuse me, now uh, uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, I said Cain, I'm sorry, he's an Atlantic Cain. Ham, Shem, and Japheth represent the three races by which the whole earth is going to be uh, intermingled. Ham represents the black man. Uh, Shem represents the Oriental and all their contingencies. And Japheth represents the, uh, the European or the Caucasian, the white man. And what he does here is he pronounces a curse on what's going to happen uh, because of man's original fall from Adam and then everything that moves on from there. Now this becomes a source of contention for a lot of people uh, because the race, the word today is race, and a race card is race, and you know everything's about race, and you're a racist, and you know you're in this, you know, and of course uh, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but the biggest racist that ever existed is God. God discriminated against the black man and the white man, and He made the nation of Israel above all other nations. That's discrimination. That's racism right there. But when you're God, you can choose who you want to be a racist to. So what happens is this. He pronounces this based on where man is going to go and what man is going to do, not what God is going to do. And he says, Cursed be Canaan. Canaan is the grandson of Ham. He can't curse Ham directly because Ham's already been blessed. So he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be unto his brothers, brethren. And of course, uh, from this point on, this is where the black man goes into slavery. This is where he is dominated and persecuted by the other two boys down through history. This is the prophecy on the way human nature is going to go. And uh, we call the existence of everybody on planet Earth the human race. And so we want to talk about racism. The human race is simply more than all three of these boys trying to outtop the other one to be in charge of something. That's the human race. The human race is about racism. It's about the white guy getting on top of the yellow guy, the yellow guy getting on top of the black guy, and then vice versa, and all down through history, who's going to run what, and what race is going to be superior. That's the human race. It's the race of humanity to be in charge. And of course, at the end of the day, the Jew is going to come out on top. So he says down here, Cursed be Cain, and the servant of a servant shall be to his brethren. So you find because of the garden fall, and because of the depravity of man, you find that the black man now is the predominant one who goes into slavery, even though there have been plenty of other people that have been in slavery, like the Jews and everybody else, but predominantly that. Then he says this, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, Canaan shall be his servants. The only one who gets a blessing out of this is Shem, and that's because Shem is going to get the oracles of God. From Shem comes the nation of Israel, so blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Then he says in verse 27, He shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And they're saying now that Japheth is the European. He says that God's going to enlarge Japheth, and he's going to dwell in the tents of Shem. That's a prophecy on exactly what happened. 
The European in 1492, Christopher Columbus, a European, a Jabothite, came over to the United States, and from that point on, everybody else came over, and you and I today, as Japhethites, have been enlarged from Europe, and now we are dwelling right now in America, in Kansas City, and Oklahoma, and out west, and wherever, where the tents of Shem used to be. Just think of the battle of Little Bighorn, Sitting Bull. He was upset because the Japhethites were being enlarged and taking him out of his land and taking over his tents. It's a prophecy on where oh, the three races are going not a prophecy in any one person. And of course, I've had black people say, well, you're saying that there's a curse on me. No, you know what? No more curse on you than a curse on me. But I will tell you this. If you feel cursed as a black man, I'll tell you what you can do. Get saved and then you're no longer a black man. How'd that work for you? I'm a Japhethite. I'm a murderer. I'm a killer. He said right there, Japheth, go to war. Well, the whole history of Europe is one Japhethite killing another one. Thirty Years' War, War of the Roses, Forty Years' War, Hundred Years' War, uh, the, the, New, the, the Pontic War, the Russian War, whatever, 1812. It's endless. I'm a murderer. I got tired of being a murderer one day. Murder can only go so far, and then it gets boring. <laughs> killed one, you killed them all. So you know what I did? I decided I wasn't going to be a Japheth anymore. I got saved and I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. If you're black here this morning and you're saved, you ain't black no more. You know that? I'm not white anymore. If you're a Japanese here this morning, you're not yellow anymore. Or whatever color you are. If you're an Indian, you're not brown anymore. Once you get saved, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Now you're a Christian. This is the absolute stupidity of racism. You want to end racism? Get saved. Because in Christ Jesus, there are no races. We're just one family. That's the way it works. But you can't get there. You know why you can't get there? Because God prophesied right there, this is what man was going to do. It's not God that separates the races like this. It's man. God wants to put them all together in Christ Jesus. It's man who wants the racism. Why? Because he wants his race to be superior. The black man down south has the Ku Klux Klan. He has the, uh, he has the Nordic race. He has the mindset of the, of the uh, Aryan race supremely. Why? Because he wants his race. You have the black people want black power. They want this. They want that. Why? Because they want to be, they want to be number one. You have the Indians going around saying, you can't build a, a, a shopping center here. This is my ancient burial grounds. You know, this is our land. You took it. This is our national flower. Why? Because they want to be in charge of everything. You have the Japanese over there trying to dominate the world by, by finances and all of this. You know why? Because they want to be number one. You have Russia over there with Putin taking the Crimea and going into the Middle East and doing everything he wants to do. You know why? Because they want to be number one. Everybody wants to be in charge and beat the other guy out. That's the human race. God's going to put an end to it. He's going to say, sorry, you're not going to make it. 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 Jews going to make it. And they're going to get it. He's going to look at all of us, and he's going to, you know what he's going to see? Black and yellow, red and white, they're all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little people of the world. Doesn't matter what your race is. When you get saved, you're no longer, you're no longer part of the human race. You're a Christian now. There's no color identified with it. There's no nationality identified with it. You're now a new creature in Christ Jesus. There's no black, there's no yellow, there's no white, there's no red, there's no purple. Just the blood of Christ covers us all. And that covers every skin color there is when you get dipped in the blood, washed in the blood. So, we'll hold up there. There's the two more sections for you.